Hello to all my fellow sleep biohackers out there. I have a call to action for you. If you are enjoying this podcast, if you feel that you are growing, you're more knowledgeable, you're feeling empowered about your sleep, that is the purpose. So please, please take the time to like and review the podcast, share it amongst your friends and family. Please follow me. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram or Facebook, I am there as well. My handle on Instagram and TikTok is AskTheSleepMD. And you can also go to my website, AskTheSleepMD.com for more information about each of these episodes. We will be sharing with you cited articles that you can actually refer to and read yourself if you like, and lots of juicy tidbits about how to sleep better. Thank you. If you would like to work directly with Dr. Cole to maximize your sleep quality with a comprehensive sleep coaching program, or if you're concerned that you have sleep apnea, or simply just want a second opinion consultation, she's now available to see patients in New Jersey, New York, California, and Georgia, with more states coming soon. Please visit oak.care sleep for a complete list of telemedicine services with transparent pricing. You deserve rapid access to quality sleep care with a physician you can trust to have your back every step of the way on your journey to better sleep. Hi, I'm Dr. Allison Cole, sleep medicine specialist and bona fide chronic insomniac. Welcome to the Sleep is My Waking Passion podcast. Remember, knowledge is empowerment, and if applied correctly, it can help you biohack your way to a better night of sleep, just like I did. Welcome to the Sleep is My Waking Passion podcast. I am very excited today to discuss a rare neurologic condition called narcolepsy with expert and KOL to various companies. He's a wonderful speaker, Dr. Kevin Trice. Kevin, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Alice. Thanks for having me. So Kevin is an MD MBA. So this guy's really super smart. He has been a medical director in sleep medicine for a number of years over the course, like different locations. But right now you're in charge of Norton Healthcare, right? North and pulmonary. Correct. Yeah. Do adult sleep medicine. That's correct. Yeah. And he trained at Case Western for his sleep. So dude, just amazing. So Kevin and I um, met each other totally out of happenstance. There is someone from Avidel. I'm going to give a shout out to Jackie Bailey. Hey, girl. It's one of those things where when you have conversations and they lead to new conversations with folks, it's one of the joys that Kevin and I, I think, can attest to when you go to these conferences is that networking opportunity and to pick the brain of new people and make new connections. Absolutely. So the other cool thing about Kevin, I don't know if he wants to put a plug in, but he is also a restaurant entrepreneur. You are nuts. I don't know. I don't know how you're doing it. Yeah. I don't have narcolepsy. (laughs) (laughs) So what's the name of your restaurant? So the restaurant is called The Cottage Inn. It's one of the oldest restaurants in Louisville, Kentucky. It's been there since 1929, serving Southern-inspired home-cooked food, fried chicken, green beans, mashed potatoes, fried pork chops, chicken livers, if you like that kind of stuff, beef liver. Wow. One of our best sellers. So it's a little place. It's homely. We love it. I smell like chicken grease every day. But I'm happy. You didn't smell like chicken grease at Sleep 2023. You must have washed it away. (laughs) (laughs) I was on vacation at my regular job. Yeah. (laughs) So Kevin is plugging away full-time working. He runs the sleep program, as I mentioned. And 
you know, it may seem kind of counterintuitive that I'm asking him to talk about some random condition called narcolepsy, but I wanted on this podcast for y'all to know that if you're having trouble sleeping and you're finding that you're waking up a lot and you're really feeling unrefreshed, sometimes what we think is just insomnia and crappy sleep may just represent a deeper problem. Like maybe there's actually something else that's happening. Absolutely. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to discuss narcolepsy with you. Can you share with our audience just what it is and information about why it even occurs? Of course. So I'll tell you a little bit just the basics about narcolepsy. So first of all, as you said, it is a rare disease. It's not something we see a lot of. And of course, for us who specialize in sleep medicine in particular, like me, who really have an interest in other hypersomnias or excessive daytime sleeping disorders like narcolepsy, there are others, of course, we see more of it. And so sometimes we become a little bit more attuned at actually diagnosing it and or treating it. But essentially, there's certain characteristics. And whenever I think of any diagnosis, I have like a little mnemonic in my head. and It's like deep shite, D-E-E-P-S-H-I-T, shite. So D is like definition. What defines it? How do you call this disorder? How is it diagnosed? Etiology, where does it come from? Epidemiology, who does it affect? He's the pathophysiology, like all the geeky stuff that really happens with the proteins and neurons. And, and then S is sequelae. What kind of happens if you do nothing? If you don't treat it, what will happen over time? H stands for how do you manage this normally? And then I is some of the idiosyncrasies and kind of weird things that may be associated with or test questions. And T stands for trice. So you don't have to forget the mnemonic. So, oh, that's so good. That's yes. Good, huh? A plus. <laughs> that's the best mnemonic I've heard in a long time. So it makes it easy to remember these things. So definition, <laughs> how do you define it? Well, you know, it's an inaccurate art. We, we don't have perfect ways of diagnosing it. But the most common thing we do is a sleep test called a polysomnogram, an overnight sleep test. And we're looking at as poly meaning many. So there's many channels and leads. Psalm meaning sleep and a gram to like measure. So we're measuring sleep with a lot of different channels. And then the next day, we followed it up with an even more uh, detailed test called a multiple sleep latency test. So what we're looking for is to make sure that given the chance to have an adequate night of sleep and you achieve it, are you still having excessive sleepiness the next day that's really profound and you know, more than one or two standard deviations out of the norm? Of course, there's other clinical things that may be associated with. So, so not just the daytime sleepiness, you may have hallucinations. The kind when you're falling asleep and you kind of drift off and you think, and for a split second, you think, did I just see a horse run across the room? Well, being in Kentucky, you may have, but most people would say no. And you're aware that these things are abnormal. They happen just for a split second or so. Wow. And you also may have things like cataplexy or profound muscle weakness associated with emotion. So I had a, a patient the other day who went to a, a derby party, oddly enough, and basically got really weak and excited when he saw a celebrity and sat down and really had trouble getting up just with profound muscle weakness. That's an extreme example. And then one of the other tenements is something called sleep paralysis, which I think a lot of us have experienced. And that's the sensation when you're laying in bed, sleeping, the eyes are closed. You feel like you're awake and you're aware, and maybe you can even hear things, but you're kind of panicking. Your heart's beating fast. You feel like if I could just get my eyes open, then I could address whatever this problem is. The minute you actually open your eyes, you instantly realize that it was a dream, but you felt just paralyzed and powerless to stop whatever kind of intruder or whatever it was. And this can happen for other reasons other than narcolepsy, but it's one of those other symptoms we kind of look for. So I think for patients, what's important to know is if you have profound daytime sleepiness, it's chronic, meaning it's been happening for a while, not just something that started the last few weeks. There are specialists out there that can help you find out whatever it is and just give them a good history. Don't come and say, I think I have narcolepsy. And you might. But just really stick to the history and really kind of maybe even keep in a journal and then we can kind of figure out 
who it affects and how it affects and do the proper testing and maybe get you the diagnosis if it's correct. Well, I wanted to just hit a pause button just to talk a little bit more about what you were saying about the symptoms. So sleep paralysis, guys, is whenever I've asked my patients about it, I literally go, have you had sleep paralysis? The reason I kind of bluntly say that is because people who have had it, they know. It is super freaky. But if you're really tired, you're really sleep deprived, for example, it's relatively common to on occasion experience it. But if it's like this routine occurrence, that's different. Of course. One of the things I learned in Sleep Fellowship, and you may have heard of this too, is to focus on trying to move your eyes side to side when it occurs. Like somehow that movement of the eyes triggers more of an easy awakening. So that's one of those tricks. If you're getting freaked out, just go, okay, I heard on this crazy podcast that I'm supposed to just move my eyes from side to side and then it'll work. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Only when your eyes are closed. Otherwise, it's considered creepy. But uh, (laughs) no, you're absolutely right. There are these little tricks. And as you said, you know, narcolepsy, of course, it can happen. You may not notice it. Odds are you probably have experience. But many people who've had sleep deprivation or other sleep fragmentation have experienced mild, maybe even moderate symptoms from time to time. Whereas those who have narcolepsy and true, these hypersomnia disorders may have it more frequently or more vividly. And one of the things that we know kind of is, I think, at least I find helpful in trying to really tease out, does this person just feel, quote unquote, tired or feel like they can't concentrate or are generally unpleased with the quality of their life during the day versus truly being super sleepy? I think that's a big distinction here because people who have narcolepsy literally They will often complain that, which is very sort of a unique feature of this particular type of what we call a central disorder of hypersomnia. That's basically, it's something that's going on in the brain that causes us to literally feel too sleepy. And that's the distinction there. Sleepy versus just super fatigue. Like you simply, narcoleptics can't keep their eyes open. They will have what we describe as like sleep attacks and things like that. Absolutely. I always ask two questions. I always say to try to differentiate, as you mentioned, you know, sleep differentiating from chronic fatigue or extreme tiredness or, you know, maybe is it depression on top of this or anhedonia. I just don't, mm. I just don't desire to do anything. Once I'm up, I'm okay, but I sit on the couch and it's like, nah, when I get up, I'll do all these things. I ask patients this question. I say, okay, listen, I've only got 15 minutes, but I got an emergency. I've got to run out in 30 minutes. I will be back. I know you're here. Will you be asleep when I get back? And what I've learned over time is it's not really whether they say yes or no, it's the speed at which they answer. The narcoleptics are like, yeah, I'll be asleep. There's no hesitation. They know that left alone, they're going to go to sleep. Some people will say, well, you know, maybe or, or probably, and it's not an exact science. You know, this is a little bit of the art that we use, but the narcoleptics are going to fall asleep. Whereas some of the people who have chronic fatigue or tiredness, for other reasons, will say, you know, I have trouble falling asleep in public. I don't, I don't know if I'll be asleep or not, but I'm just tired. And they seem kind of defeated. The other thing I always ask is, how much does your sleepiness affect your day-to-day life? How much does it affect your job? How much does it affect your relationships? Because knowing that this diagnosis, unfortunately, can take years to get diagnosed. It can be mislabeled or misdiagnosed or undertreated. It tends to have a profound effect on people's relationships with their you know, loved ones. So they you know, lose relationships. The other one thinks they're lazy or sometimes on drugs keeping a steady job or having issues with their boss or employer. And it can even lead to things like depression. So they get frustrated because they feel like they've sought help 
and they're just not getting the answer to the problem. So I really try to differentiate that fatigue versus sleepiness. I think if I hear the sleepiness there, it kind of triggers my ears to maybe be more aggressive in the workup and dig into the history a little bit more to make sure that you know we can get the diagnosis quickly if it's appropriate. And who's typically affected? Like, what's the typical age? And obviously, I think we're, if I recall correctly, we're both adult primarily treat adults. Correct. I will just state for the record that narcolepsy, unfortunately, can occur in kids. I don't really take care of those patients. Usually they're seen by someone maybe who's like a pediatric neurologist with sleep background and that sort of thing. So I, it hasn't been my kind of direct experience so much. But where does that bar get raised when a patient comes to you? Sure. So a little bit of my background. So I did pulmonary critical care and sleep fellowship in University of Louisville. And then several years later, went back and did a dedicated sleep fellowship where we did both pediatric and adult. Now, although I'm not a pediatrician, luckily when I was at Case Western, I trained with phenomenal pediatricians, some definitely nationally known, if not internationally known, pediatric sleep specialists, and had the fortune of at least two of those providers being doctors I had worked with back in Louisville. And one of them actually is back in Louisville. So we've literally worked three times together, Louisville, then to Cleveland, now back to Louisville. So although I don't treat them on a regular basis, I do get to keep up with it quite a bit. And as you mentioned, it can affect children. So usually we'll see school-age children, late teens to early 20s is the most common age that you'll start to see symptoms. And I think that's the time, particularly when children are developing more independence and starting to do things. Additionally, as their normal circadian rhythm or their internal clock changes, and they're starting to sleep later and get up later, and you're finding that the people who are having difficulty can't keep up with their peers. So one of the things we'll see is when they go off to college, when people are burning the midnight oil from either studying or partying and uh, making it to class the next day, and, and they just can't. And they're sleeping through parties and they're sleeping through events that they really want to be present for. So that's kind of one end of the spectrum. And then we see another little peak a little bit later in life as well. It's difficult because you know we see male and female distribution. But using that age, I think sometimes you know we have to be careful not to just dissuade them that this is something natural and that's going to get better. But yeah, that early 20 age is range when we see the vast majority of them. But because of the delay in diagnosis, many of them are not diagnosed for five to 10 years later, so sometimes early 30s. If you think about that for a second, late 20s to early 30s, particularly female, may be childbearing or have children, and they can frequently get lumped into, oh, it's a side effect of having children or being postpartum or depression. And so it, it behooves us to really kind of focus on that group, even though they're younger patients, to really listen to their history and dig deep into their history because we can't offset it and then have this long delay in diagnosis for them. And especially since when you're starting to see, as you mentioned, you might be 30 by the time you get diagnosed, but if you're having symptoms in your like teens and 20s, those are very formidable years in terms of your personality development and also how you feel about yourself, right? We're so sensitive to the outside world and their perception. And I've definitely had my share of folks that are like, they really felt bad. Like there's something wrong with me. I'm lazy. I don't care about my kids. I can't be for like they really sort of internalize that or they had other people in their lives who were like, what's your damage? Like, what's wrong with you? Why can't you stay awake? And as difficult a diagnosis as it may be to have, it has been enlightening now that we actually have some treatments for it that if you can give someone back the quality of life, one of the biggest things that they say is, you gave me a diagnosis. I'm not insane. I wasn't lazy. I have a medical condition, Exactly. but there's nothing inherently wrong with my character that I'm somehow not like everyone, which I think can be so liberating. Oh, for sure. For sure. 
it is, and that's what I meant when I said earlier, I hate to say it. And I say, you know, if narcolepsy doesn't mess up your life, it may not even be narcolepsy. I mean, it, <laughs> it's, it's profound, the effect that it has on not just their outside relationship, but also, as you said, internally, how they feel about themselves, their self-esteem. They feel like maybe it is willpower. Maybe I could exert myself more. They know something's wrong. They don't have a name to it. So they don't know what to look it up. And even when they see sometimes narcolepsy, they think, uh, but somebody may brush it off. And they start to feel like, is this as good as life is going to get? And they feel like this should be a beatable disorder. It's not a physical thing that manifests on the outside. I don't see rashes and lesions. You know, my joints don't hurt. I'm otherwise young. Sometimes when I'm awake, I feel normal, although it's usually very small spurts of time. But it's this frustration with going to the doctor may not help because in the past, it hasn't provided me with either a name, i.e. a diagnosis, or more importantly, a treatment to make me feel better and make me feel closer to normal. And so, as you said, I think right now, with the kind of explosion in treatments that we have available and even more on the horizon, it's an exciting time. Uh, one of the other things you asked a minute ago was about who does it affect? And one thing I didn't mention was we think that there's an association sometimes with people after having infections. So certain infections, they got weird names, Campylobacter jejuni, I think it's the GI bug. So people who've had a diarrheal illness, essentially, but also after things like the flu. And so there is a little bit of concern, at least within our sleep world, that with the COVID-19 variant, that we may see an increase in patients over the next few months to years who develop profound sleepiness that could be narcolepsy. And of course, we worry, is it long COVID syndrome or other titles that we're not sure? So I always say you can't just brush it off or give it another diagnosis. If someone's coming to you and they're profoundly sleepy and you've given them a diagnosis or not, and they're still sleepy, they need to be evaluated by specialists because there are things that we can do. Maybe they may seem minuscule, but they can make a huge difference in the outcome for patients. I do recall as well hearing about group A strep potentially, at least there being some association. Correct. Particularly with, you know, we have these certain biologic programming, if you will. And some of us have mutations. So there's certain what we call HLA types. And there's certain people who, if their genetic makeup is that they have one particular type versus another, that may also be one of those links, as I recall, that would increase your risk potentially. Absolutely. And these are, as you said, they're kind of what we call proteins. For the general public, I just call them all proteins since it's where they hear all the time for dieting. But different proteins are markers that we know that can be associated with certain disorders. So if you have that particular marker, then we know there's a higher chance that you could have narcolepsy and other disorders, some of them very not very serious ones. So that's something that we look at sometimes in certain patients. Ultimately, if we really want to know, we can actually do a spinal tap like we do in babies when they get meningitis. And yeah, that's the one you know, they kind of curl you up like a baby and stick a little needle in your back. And a little needle is exactly what I mean. Skinny, but it's long. <laughs> Got to get in there. And we can draw out a little bit of spinal fluid and send it to a specialized laboratory looking for, again, another certain molecule or protein called orexin, which is used and we know that works in terms of wakefulness. I think of it as orexin, so it keeps you awake. It's also used in for controlling our diet and satiety and how well we feel. But we know that in people who have a certain detriment or decrement in that level beyond a certain cutoff, it is diagnostic of narcolepsy. And that is the disorder. Essentially, there's this lack of orexin. So something causes this portion of their brain that produces this protein or molecule to stop producing it enough. And as those levels fall, you become more and more sleepy, more and more these cataplectic events where you may feel weak or drool or have clumsiness every time you get excited. And so we can actually measure that in spinal fluid. We don't do that very often, but it is one of the gold standard tests that we can use. So again, these are sometimes they seem small, but it can really help and aid in diagnosis for patients. 
Now, I had read that it can be up to 60% of patients will eventually progress to develop some cataplexy, though I feel like in my clinical practice, it was sort of like finding the unicorn when they actually had cataplexy. So I feel like it was just seemed more rare to me. And I don't know if it's simply that I'm a pulmonologist, so I'm getting all the OSA consults, or I was just curious as to how frequently you saw that. Obviously, you just had a patient with it. Cataplexy, it's it's a weird symptom. It is, you know, kind of we think of narcolepsy and then we think of like a catatonic state. Essentially, it's kind of these two major kind of neurological conditions that cause this particular symptom. You know, there's a movie, if you know, maybe Deuce Bigelow. I see you have a Lebowski. You might be a Deuce Bigelow <laughs> fan, Adam Sandler. And one of the characters in the movie, they're out at dinner with, I think, Rob Schneider. And he's with this lady and she's talking and she just, <laughs> I mean, she just falls over, head into the bowl of soup, right? And so I think what's difficult for not just the general public, but for practitioners, we expect cataplexy to be so profound that it's easy to diagnose. And I think, you know, we have to keep in mind, we're asking very sleepy people a lot of detailed questions and expecting them to give exact answers. (laughs) I mean, on my best day, I mean, I give you the same answer twice, right? So I think it requires a lot of digging and at the same time, not trying to lead the patient and make them say yes but really trying to explain the symptoms that maybe they're very mild. Like for instance, I, I had a patient who she'd say she didn't have cataplexy. Now, sidebar, it had been listed in her chart, I think, to get her medication approved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> However, she showed me a picture and in the picture, her face had kind of a little palsy, like a little bit of just lag on one side. And I said, it was at a wedding and she was in the wedding party. And I saw this great picture. I said, your face looks funny there. <laughs> I've known her a while, so I can talk very frank with her. And she says, yeah, I do that sometimes. And I said, what do you mean? She says, well, I look goofy in pictures. And so I asked her to show me a few more pictures over her role. And, and literally, probably half of her pictures when she was smiling clearly at some event that should be, her face would kind of develop this little weird, eh, it wouldn't smile equally. And I said, has anyone ever commented or your friends tease you about your funny smile? She's like, oh, I've been teased since high school about this. I said, can you smile for me now? And when she smiled, her smile was completely symmetrical or equivalent on both sides. I said, wow. so it's not a nerve problem that, you know, you always have this, didn't just grow this way. It's just sometimes. And she's like, uh, and she thought about it. She's like, yeah, some pictures are okay. She's like, you know, if I do like professional headshots, I don't have a problem. It's usually when I'm laughing with my friends, that's cataplexy. And so it was like, you know, again, who would have thought of that? But luckily she happened to be talking about sweating. She was excited. And so I think for patients and for providers, doctors and nurse practitioners, uh, physician assistants, you have to really kind of dig into it because if the cataplexy is not controlled, then maybe the narcolepsy is not well controlled. Again, if they you know come in and say, hey, my kid tickles me and I fall on the floor, <laughs> home run, easy to do. If they come in and they you notice that they complain of drooling or every time they get into an argument with their spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend, they go on the couch and lay down and they, oh, we never fight because every time she we fight, she just goes to sleep. Oh, wow. Really? Wow. How long after yeah. you start the argument? Here's a go. Within 10 minutes of us having any kind of just disagreement, she's on the couch knocked out. I'm like, that's cataplexy. That's not just narcolepsy. It's this extreme emotion, whether joy or fear or confusion that kind of shows up physically as weakened muscles. It can be small muscle groups, manual dexterity, no writing gets funny, or it can be big muscle groups like I have trouble holding my baby or I get weak in the legs and feel like I need to sit down sometimes. My best friend actually has cataplexy when he is drinking a beer. (laughs) Funny story. He literally holds his pinky under the beer and he adopted this so that he wouldn't drop his pinky because when he would hold it like this, we'd be laughing. And I can't tell you how many times the beer has just crashed on the floor. 
And we're like, what's wrong with you? Why? What, what What are you doing? I can't hang out with you anymore. So his nickname is now Pinky because he holds his pinky under his beer. Does he have the other symptoms of narcolepsy too? Well, I think he, he definitely had the profound sleepiness. And he's a physician, even in medical school. I mean, he slept through classes. It was very difficult. He kept a very abnormal study schedule. He's definitely had sleep paralysis. He's had definitely hallucinations. And then other parasomnias. Sometimes he wakes up in the middle of the night sleepwalking. But yeah, so he's well-treated now, but it took, despite even going to medical school, to understand that that was his symptom, you know, because we thought he was just drunk. Well, when he's doing it with the first beer, then you realize there's a problem. Not He's not just intoxicated. <laughs> All right. So two things coming out of that that I hear. Number one, if you've got your beer... <laughs> You don't want to spill your drink. That's you want right. every sip out of it. So you figure out clever ways to get beyond it. And then number two, I think what I take away from it is it really is possible to be highly functional. I can't even imagine how much struggle it was for him and how much harder he had to work compared to you know his other medical student compatriots. But you can be very successful. Absolutely. And it's wonderful to see that now he's practicing and he's treated and he's doing well. Indeed. It's just Awesome. That is probably one of the coolest narcolepsy stories I've ever heard. So thank you for sharing. People, they develop kind of these adaptive behaviors. And so again, as I said, we're asking sleepy people these detailed questionnaires and prolonged questions and drilling them. And some of it, they just don't even remember because it becomes an automatism. This is just how they survive, right? How many cups of coffee do you drink? Oh, I have one a day. And you ask them later, like, well, yeah, I have one a day. And plus, you know, well, I always have one at lunch. And then, you know, sometimes I drink a monster on the way home just so I can make it home in traffic. You're like, right. But you just told me last week it was just one a day. And so they don't even consider it caffeine because that's their norm. And unless they have something extra, they don't count that. That's just what they need to function, right? Or they'll do things like, you know, hiding their office to take a nap or holding their pinky into the beer. And these are just all the little things that they're doing just to survive. So people will do adaptive behaviors. And the last thing you said, of course, is you can be highly successful. I have medical students, I've treated physicians, several attorneys, homemakers. I mean, the occupation runs the gamut. So I always say, don't let your occupation or even your past medical history think that, well, because I have, let's say, depression or anxiety or, you know, I'm not working right now, that can't be it. Not true. Not true at all. It affects all kinds of people all across the spectrum. And you did touch base earlier, and I wanted to just emphasize that, that people who do have narcolepsy may be more prone to certain comorbidities. Just as a starting point, you had mentioned, you know, feeling depressed, and that's something that we often see. And I'm sure there are multiple reasons for that. Mm -hmm. Any other comments on that or any other comorbidities, meaning other medical issues that we often see associated with narcolepsy worth patients knowing? And as you can imagine, if you can't, you know, sleep, can't stay awake and you have difficulty maintaining employment, of course, you know, frequently get fired or frequently switching jobs. So depression is easy one to set in. Anxiety can also happen there as well. As you mentioned, that one protein that sometimes we can measure in the blood to kind of give us maybe that they have narcolepsy, maybe not, but maybe a higher preponderance of it. We can look at things like sometimes inflammatory bowel disease and other things. But the biggest one is really that association with infection. And it doesn't happen necessarily one week after infection. It can be months to even years later. But we know that that sometimes can be the triggering event why somebody seemed quote unquote normal, did not suffer from chronic excessive daytime sleep is maybe just the normal sleepiness, but now all of a sudden has really developed a combination of symptoms and it's becoming uh, detrimental to their lifestyle. They really can't function because of their sleepiness. I've had some people who have had people in their family who have had narcoleptic type symptoms. Like I had one really interesting 
young woman who she has actually idiopathic hypersomnia, but her sister had a diagnosis of narcolepsy. I feel like that's not entirely common, as common, but there is some data that supports that there could even be a slight genetic risk for that. Indeed. And I think it is true. It's there. It's debating on what the actual prevalence number is in terms of elevated risk if you have a first degree relative, so brother, sister, mother, father, or child with some type of central hypersomnia like narcolepsy or idiopathic hypersomnia. I've been fortunate or misfortunate, I don't know how you put it, to kind of work all over the United States. And I can tell you from my clinical experience, I've definitely seen a few clusters when I've worked in both on the West Coast outside of Seattle and then in Eastern Kentucky and Appalachia and also Western Kentucky. No jokes about Appalachia inserted here. Uh, (laughs) Actually, in Western Kentucky, I saw more preponderance in a couple of larger groups of families. But what's interesting to me is sometimes when you really ask about that son or daughter who's sleepy, you can really find out that maybe another relative has had profound sleepiness, whether or not it was diagnosed with an aunt who was profoundly sleepy or maybe not two standard deviations, but clearly everyone else in the family knows they had a sleeping problem. So I think there is uh, a little bit more that will be kind of ascertained over time, particularly as we start to do more genetic testing on patients. But yeah, I think it's definitely worth asking if someone in the family has any sleep disorder, that's crucial when somebody presents to you, you know, complaining of excessive daytime sleepiness. Right now, I have four families that I'm treating where I'm treating at least two people in the family, either sisters or father, son or something along those lines. So, you know, we definitely see it. You know, I'd be curious is whether or not, and I always contemplate this with that family that I know, whether or not, hey, you know, they're both around the same age. They're two kids that grew up together. I'm like, did you both get the same boogies? Because we all share the same stuff. Exactly. And then you guys had that genetic predisposition and then bam, you've got it. It's very fascinating. You know what? That's honestly, that's one of the most fascinating things to me just about medicine in general, not necessarily even narcolepsy. My One of my mentors in uh, Boston, when I trained there, my residency, Bart Jelly, he would always talk. Uh, and I'll never guess because, you know, I was young, first year intern. And one of the first lectures he gives in the intensive care unit was about pandemics and epidemics. Who would have thought we'd have a pandemic years later? And you know, he kind of describes this in terms of epidemic, it happens, it's an outbreak. It's like diarrhea at the swimming pool, right? A whole bunch of kids get it, but not everybody gets it. Pandemic, it's like Pangea. Everybody in the world is susceptible to getting it. He said, but during these epidemic outbreaks of the flu every year, one of the things you have to ask yourself is, why did the patient in front of you get sick? And also, why you did not get sick? Because if you think about it, being exposed all the time in the ICU and things like this, we're exposed to so many different variants. Our immune systems are run down because of our schedule. We're having up close and personal exposure to different, all these different strains, and we're generally not getting sick. And so this kind of two-hit wonder is not just the fact that you had exposure, but also some kind of genetic predisposition that made you more prone to it. So that when your immune system is assaulted, you're more likely to have an adverse reaction, whether it's an infection or something like narcolepsy. And it always fascinates me when I see particularly one child with it and one child, and they're about the same age who doesn't have it. I always wonder, I wonder if they're going to get it later. I'm just curious to see what kind of happens. Uh, And I think uh, there's a lot of work to be done with that, but it is interesting for our end. So if you had any advice for patients, or I'm going to step back a second and not use the word patient, but any advice for any of our listeners who may not be patients yet, but feel, hey, this is sort of resonating with me. I'm thinking that I might want to try to approach this with my doctor. Often what's going to happen is it's going to be that first discussion with a primary care doctor, for example. Do you have any advice to give them on how best to advocate for themselves? A couple of things. First, get your life together. 
<laughs> I wish it was that easy. But no, advocate for yourself is the key. You don't have to be extremely educated. You don't have to use medical terminology, but impress upon whoever you're seeing, whether it's your primary care doctor or specialist or, again, nurse practitioner, physician assistant, something's wrong with me. I feel like something's wrong. I'm sleepy. I don't know if this is normal sleepiness or not, but I feel like something's not right. And then be consistent and vigilant until you get better. And in general, what I tell patients is don't accept Band-Aids. We're at a place in medicine now where for most disorders, we don't have to take a Band-Aid. Yes, we can give you medicine to temporarily make you feel a little bit more awake or maybe a little bit more alert. But really, for most things, we should be able to find the diagnosis and get specialized special therapy for you. So just advocate. If you're sleepy, say you're sleepy and, and don't feel guilty or bad or rushed. Explain to it how it's affecting your daily life. And then also do your part. So as much as you can, and again, within reason, try to work on your sleep hygiene, your sleep schedule and you know reducing stress and all the things they're going to tell you. Those things are important and they can have a profound impact on your sleepiness, whether or not you have narcolepsy. And so I, like, I'll give an example. I have narcolepsy patients who work third shift. I'm like, what are you doing? I don't want to work third shift. I expect you to be sleepy. Don't compound your sleepiness more than you have to with this disorder. It, it sounds horrible, but make plans to switch to a better schedule. So, you know, be an advocate for yourself, be persistent and tell them if you really feel like your sleepiness has been going on for some time or it's causing problems in your daily life, then vocalize those. Don't worry about the terminology, remembering whether it was narcolepsy or idiopathic hypersomnia. Now, what was a cataplexy? And don't tell me again, it's paralysis. That's our job to be the investigators. Your job is to be the great historian. Tell me what's happening in your life and let me kind of start off with this big funnel of diagnosis and whittle it down until I get to the right place. Because sometimes what will happen is somebody will come in and say, Doc, I think I have narcolepsy. And we may put that on our funnel, but one test or one thing that makes us not think that, and we immediately exclude it, and five years goes by before somebody kind of pulls it back out of the wastebasket and puts it back in that funnel of diagnosis. So just be a good historian. Tell them what you're experiencing and be consistent every time you do it. Tell them and tell them and tell them. And then if nothing happens and you don't feel like you're good, ask to see a dedicated sleep specialist who does preferably sleep medicine only, but somebody who really may treat complicated sleep disorders, as you mentioned, not just sleep apnea or garden variety insomnia. Not that there's anything wrong with those. I love that advice. I'm going to add one thing to that, which is kind of hearkening back to my days in general medicine residency, as you may recall, being in clinic and you know, you're seeing that clinic patient and they are coming at you. They got the diabetes and the hypertension and they've got all these other issues. And then you got your hand on the door because you're just about to go to number two. And they go, oh, by the way, I have one last thing. Don't let the sleep issue, if it's really impacting your life, be the by the way. Lead with that. If the rest of the stuff is okay and your blood pressure is well managed and there's no serious issue going on that's of real importance, let the doctor know, let the nurse practitioner know, really emphasize because we honestly as healthcare providers, we care deeply about making sure that you have a good quality of life. It's not just about like slapping a Band-Aid, oh, here's your medication for your high blood pressure, get out of my office, but we are on a routine basis, overwhelmed often, particularly if you're, you know, in general medicine and you're getting bombarded with a number of issues. So just highlight it. This is important to me. Let's focus on this. And I dollars to donuts, they're probably gonna. And if they don't, then you're probably going to find a new primary. I'm just saying. <laughs> exactly. No, you're right. But lead, I, call, I tell my patients all the time, lead with the soft stuff. All the numerical stuff, the hypertension, diabetes, 
it's to some degree formulaic. We want to know who you are as a patient. We want to like personalize that. But that's the secondary stuff. Lead with the soft stuff. Don't wait. To, and I tease my patients. I'll be like, now, you know, we only have 15 minutes and you waited till 14 minutes and 45 seconds to tell me that you don't have a leg. This whole time, <laughs> I thought that was your leg. And now you're going to tell me that that's a prosthetic. Is this your first time in a doctor's office? What are you doing? You know, you're supposed to write these things down. And, and so I push back and say, literally, look, look, we're all human. I don't do it either. Write it down. Lead with the soft stuff. Come in and get two things addressed. But general health, sleep, mental health, fatigue, tiredness, they should be a specialized visit because they take time to get into. They take a lot of time to get into. So at least once a year, you really should be addressing these softer things that are a little bit harder to explain, more subjective, less numbers. Make that. It's going to help you all around. And people, we are out there. We are sleep specialists that are dedicated to this. Look for us. Come see us. We really welcome Indeed. the input. This is stuff that we really like to dive deeply into. Love it. It's fascinating to us. And I don't know about you, but it's one of the most rewarding things to actually help someone with their sleep because they are so happy when they feel like they're sleeping well, regardless of the condition. It's life-changing. It is. And in our line of work as pulmonary critical care doctors, we don't always get yeah. the um, happy ending, if you will. I mean, we have seen our fair share of not so happy endings no. and those little wins in sleep are huge for us. <laughs> huge. I tell you, I had a patient hug yesterday and it was like, yes. That is one of my favorites. That's one thing about being a lot doing telemedicine these days is like, I want to hug my patients. And I'm like, I can't, I have to give you like a telemedicine hug. It's just not the same thing. I know. <laughs> I know. It's not, but I tell you what, the joy is still there. Like you said, we want to see people get better. Well, Kevin, it is always a pleasure to chat with you. I kindly thank you for all of your time. Likewise. likewise. Please enjoy the rest of your Corona for me and have a fabulous day. Allison, it's awesome. It's really good to see you. Good to see you anytime. I'm so proud of you. Keep up the good work. This podcast would not be possible without the support of Mr. Joey Salvia, who is my producer, and Adrian Paterath, my creative director. Disclaimer. The statements made on this podcast have not been evaluated by the U.S. Food or Drug Administration. They are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. The information provided by this podcast should not be used as individual medical advice. While I am a practicing sleep provider, I am not your sleep provider. You should always consult with your personal healthcare provider for individual recommendations and treatment.